This is Adina Blaustein, Content Production Manager at Aleph Beta. We're all still reeling at the images of the brutal attack on Israel and what it means to see the worst side of humanity. But over the past few weeks, we've also seen some beautiful moments of kindness and community. In our third podcast episode about the war in Israel, Imu and Rabbi Foreman sit down once again to share more heartwarming stories and reflect on the troubling questions they've been grappling with. Here they are. We're back in week three of what feels like an alternate universe. Imu, how you been making out this week? I don't even know how to answer that question. Um, but yeah, I didn't expect for us to be recording a bunch of these emergency podcasts, but who knows, the world is uh, very uncertain. A few of our listeners have written in saying, these podcasts help. And since I'm feeling particularly helpless, somebody saying that <laughs> something that I'm doing is mildly useful uh, motivates us to record more podcasts. <laughs> we'll continue with that. Yeah, so I'm still here in Israel. Um, and I thought I'd report to you a little bit about what's going on over here in my life. We've, we're here in the Leonardo Plaza. I think I must have mentioned last week that through the efforts of two philanthropists, uh, and this, these efforts are now ongoing, the hotel is full with hundreds of people who have been taken from Kfar Maimon, which is one of the Yishuvim in the south that was mandatorily evacuated. For the most part, the folks in Kfar Maimon survived without terrible injury. And one of the things I learned this week is how that came to be, because they're sandwiched by Yishuvim that really got hit badly. Be'eri, which uh, scores and scores of people were killed, was right next to them. And uh, I happened to meet, uh, was chatting with some of the, the people here, a man by the name of Guy, who's a lawyer, his wife Naama works in high tech. They're up here, and they actually told me the story over Shabbos, and I kind of wanted to tell it to you pretty remarkable story. Basically, what happened was that early Shabbat morning on Simchat Torah, they had um, this just incredible spread of rockets that were mm -hmm. um, being fired, and the Rav of the Shechuna, I believe his name is Rav Edri, basically told everybody to go home, do not stay in shul, go home, take shelter, and turn on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they did. And that's when they learned that not only were there rockets coming, but there were actually terrorists that were infiltrating these communities. Now, at the time, they did not know how many terrorists there mm -hmm. were. They thought it was a few dozen. Nobody understood that it wasn't a few dozen. It was it was more than 2,000 right. um, at the time. It was literally an invasion. But be that as it may, they weren't in a position to defend themselves. Um, every yeshuv has basically some sort of volunteer guard of you know, folks from the yeshuv that take turns guarding, but they had been actually disarmed. There was some concern about mistaking hostiles or something, so Sahal temporarily took away their rifles. Basically, they had no guns. So Guy basically uh, told his uh, um, his family he had four boys and uh, I think a daughter and his wife, and he told his four boys that, okay, it's kind of up to us. The plan is going to be if terrorists come in the house, we hold them off at the main door. 
And he took his boys into the kitchen and told them to get out the longest knives that they had and to just literally station themselves on the sides of the door. They thought if there was one or maybe two terrorists that came in, even if they came in with guns, maybe they had a chance to survive with knives. And that his wife and daughter would use the chance to be able to try to escape through the back door. That was kind of their plan. So they stationed themselves by the door uh, to do just that. Now, meanwhile, word was coming in from other folks in the Yishuv that a band of terrorists was gathering outside the gates of the Yishuv mm-hmm. and getting ready to blast their way mm-hmm. in. By their count, there were 40 of them, wow. 40 heavily armed terrorists that basically would have had their way with the entire Yishuv that didn't have any guns. There was one pistol that his friend had that was he was kind of trying to stand guard outside of his house. At that point, they made an emergency call to the army and said, uh, we have 40 terrorists outside our gates. We really need some backup, and we need it now. And the word they got from Sahal was, we have no one to send you. The, the available units in Sahal were already in pitch battle and defending Be'eri, um, which was the Yishuv right next door, the kibbutz right next door. And there was no one to send. Um, they were on their own. At that point, a helicopter passed overhead, an army helicopter flying low on its way to Be'eri. Mm-hmm. The terrorists that were massed at the gate saw the helicopter flying low and sensed an opportunity. One of them lifted up his shoulder-fired missile and launched an anti-tank missile at the helicopter, hit the helicopter, brought the helicopter down. The helicopter crashes to the ground but does not explode. Doors open, 25 Sahel soldiers come pouring out of the helicopter, immediately take up positions. The helicopter explodes, and they see that there's these 40 terrorists there. And they get into a pitched gun battle with them that lasts over four hours. And in that gun battle, they eliminated all 40 terrorists with no casualties to Tzal. And that's why this guy and his wife were there to tell the story to me. If it weren't for that, oh, that's wild. <laughs> he said none of us would be in this hotel. That's crazy. So there's this this army from the heavens, essentially. <laughs> they called Sahal, asking for help, and Sahal says, "No, sorry, we we can't do that." But there was an army in the heavens that that was brought down. Wow, that is a yeah. remarkable story. Imagine being on board that helicopter and getting hit with yeah. an anti tank missile, right? And you think like this is it. We're all going to die. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And in fact, it's only that that brings you down, right, safely in the place that you really need to be to save an entire town. Uh, After Shabbos, I got to see some pictures of the burnt-out helicopter. It was a pretty exploded helicopter. Wow. Anyway, it was a remarkable story. So these are the guys here, and I've gotten to know some of them, and I want to tell you some stories about that. First of all, Saturday night, Performers are coming from all over the place. And this past Motzei Shabbat, uh, Yishai Rebo came. And we had a little uh, intimate Yishai Rebo concert. Performer, you're getting a lot of uh, great benefits. Are you also, you get to wear all the socks that we send to the uh, the soldiers? (laughs) The real reason I'm here is I'm just soaking up all the perks we give to those people from the South. Anyway, so right before the Yishai Rebo concert, everyone breaks into song, but it's not a Yishai Rebo song. They're just singing, Kol Sasan V'Kol Simcha. And the whole community is really getting into it. 
and they're all dancing. So like I'll dance with them. I didn't know what was going on. And there's this big table set. It looked like it was a Malava Malka. It turns out it was a Sheva Brachas. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll dance for Sheva Brachas. And then one of my friends who I got to meet here explained afterwards, after I was finished dancing, what the story behind the Sheva Brachas was. Turns out that Shabbat morning on Simchat Torah, there was a call that went out. A commander in the army reached out to one of his soldiers who was in Kfar Maimon boy, who wasn't in Kfar Maimon, who was in, I think it was Yushalayim, and said, we're getting besieged here, we really need help. And he got into a car and uh, started driving south with his gun to see what he could do. On the road, he was shot and killed <gasps> by terrorists. What? On the road. Um, and he never got there. And his brother, in Kfar Maimon, was due to be married nine days from then. And on the day that he got up from Shiva was his wedding, his oh already scheduled wedding. Um, and that was his wedding. And this was the last of the Sheva Bracha from, from that wedding. And, you know, you're dancing with this Hassan, but, you know, he's really going from just, well, the worst of times to a kind of the best of times. And, you know, I don't know. There's something about these. I imagine you you wouldn't want to let go. Like you'd want to dance forever. You don't want to leave the the cocoon of the uh, the sheva brachos. And all the sheva sheva brachos I'm into. You know, people sort of. I don't know. They never really get into the songs as much as they were really getting into the songs. Somehow, the songs really reverberated. Um, and of course, you know, those songs are really songs about the rejuvenation of Israel and of God rejoicing uh, uh, with us. And that somehow using the joy of a man finding his bride as a metaphor for the kind of joy that God can experience with reference to us in bringing us back and, and, um, and, and having us you know, flourish on the land. So given the circumstances, those had, you know, a special meaning. That song of Odi Shama, uh, the, the idea that like we've been through so much suffering as a people, the idea that there's this uh, promise that, you know, once again will be heard the voices of joy and gladness, right? Like it seems now so just like like it's not possible it's not possible for us to go back to the way things were or or for there to be joy again and there's this promise that those sounds of happiness will will come back again i guess the juxtaposition like when when someone tells me that like it'll be happy again good times are coming again i'm thinking you know in in a few months in a year and you know like in the future but within the depths of war and despair and while hostages are away for there to be weddings for there to be occasions of of happiness there's so much complexity of emotion and and um difficulty there right? i i find myself just always confused about what to feel and think in every moment right just like even now like i, I don't know we laughed earlier in this podcast i'm like i don't know like maybe we should cut that we shouldn't have laughter uh in in a podcast episode um or I don't know. Even even moral questions is moral ambiguity for me. Like I'm I'm I've been struggling with a lot of different a lot of different feelings. Yeah, I have too. You know, one of the words going around is moral clarity. There is a certain kind of moral clarity that comes when you're attacked in such a ruthless and 
barbaric way. But somehow there's this weird mix of moral clarity on the one hand, but, you know, I don't know, just a sense of, um, a general sense of confusion, I suppose, in, in a lot of other feelings. We don't get exposed to emotions this raw so often and processing them, dealing with them. You know, like my kids were pretty secure, but I've had kids that have woken up with nightmares that called me. And it's, you know, it's scary, confusing, chaotic stuff. And I want to talk to you about some of that in a minute. Let me just, I'll tell you one or two more stories and then we can maybe turn to some of that, those confusing things. Your stories I always find helpful, so. So we had my daughter over for uh, Shabbos and she shared a story. She was going shopping um, in Ramat Eshkol, one of the neighborhoods over there. Turns out there was a woman who was collecting foodstuffs in the Makolet for the poor. Just for the poor of the town, she was asking people, you know, could you donate some cans? Could you donate some various things? So she asked Shalva, could you donate something I'm collecting for the poor? And Shalva's, like, immediate response is, what do you mean you're collecting for the poor? It's like, I mean... Right. In a time like this, people are collecting maybe for the soldiers, right? I hear that. Maybe you're collecting from the people from the South that don't have anything because they were uprooted. But just collecting for the poor of the town, it just seemed like a strange. So it almost seemed like it was off. Like it didn't have to do with the times. It was like this shred of normalcy from times past. But she said, you know what? Fine. I'm going to do that. So she goes and she buys a chicken and she goes to the front of the makolet, pays for the chicken, and she comes back to the lady and gives her the chicken. The lady's so happy that she got that chicken and she's talking to Shalva and Shalva's chatting with her. And the lady says, I don't know if you know who I am, but she then revealed who she was. She was the mother of one of the kidnapped children. Oh my God. And she was... She said, I couldn't just stay home and just be in my own world with my own thoughts and just focused on my own child and everything. I had to get out of myself and see if I could just do something for someone else. So I'm collecting for the poor people around here. That's how I'm getting out of myself. And that's what she was doing. That's what she was there for. These stories are are almost unbelievable. I find it weirdly comforting because, right, like, I don't know what your experience has been, but like the vortex of emotions that I feel and you're in yourself and in your pain and it just spirals. It's almost like you, your emotions collapse in on themselves so that, and that's me. I'm just, I'm yeah. no one in this, right? So a person who's, whose child is, is missing for them to say, I can't, it's almost like I can't dwell within my own self. I need to mm-hmm. uh, go out. To me, it really gets to something we were talking about. I think a couple weeks ago, which is that the natural emotion is this rage. But the thing with rage is, you know, either it expresses itself outwardly, which can be problematic, or it just is this tunnel inside of yourself that you just live in and it draws you in and you just brood and get angry and that's no good. And then it feels like, what's the word for it? Righteous indignation, righteous rage, purple rage. The problem with rage is that it paired with righteousness, right? Which makes you think like, how could I ever let go of that? And it's such a dangerous emotion to just dwell on and dwell on and just be sort of consumed by righteous rage. But to me, a story like this is inspiring because it's like, okay, if anybody has a right to be consumed by righteous rage, it's this lady. And she's trying to 
get out of that whirlpool, whirlpool. And it's not like she's forgetting about her kid, but somehow I've got to break free of that. Um, and maybe the energy of breaking free of that and just contributing to the general sense of achdut and, and sense of, of oneness in the community can be something that redounds in some special way uh, for the benefit of the kidnapped children in general, maybe her child too. Now, you were talking to me about this, just this notion of, um, of the individual versus the collective, of who are you in this? Or do you see yourself as, a, as an individual or do you see yourself as part of the larger body of yeah. a nation? Uh, one of the stories that keeps coming to mind over and over for me and 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 I don't even know what to make of it, but like uh, just the the verse in in Malachim and Kings of the Ishashun Amit who says, you know, Betochami Ani Yoshavet. Mm. Interesting. That, that I, I dwell. That's the, right. Like I dwell amongst my nation. Well, this is the moment when the prophet comes to her and is very impressed with her actions and says, "What can I do for you?" And she's what like, "What can I do for you? Nothing. Can I speak to the king? Right? Can I speak to the king? Yeah. Right?" And he's like offering to do something really nice for her. And and to single her out to be treated differently than everyone else, and she's like, "No, I'm perfectly happy being part of the community." But I'm and, and then later on, when the prophet insists on doing something for her, and she has this child that is this miracle child, and then the child dies, she comes back in anger to the prophet, and it was like, you know. I didn't ask for this child. You know, you just decided this was a nice thing to give with me. And at the time, I told you not to not to joke with me. You know, she she's really mad at him. There's something about, you know, being part of the community was so special. And where I was getting at when you know we were talking about this off mic at some point, you know, over the over the past week. But you know, one of the special things, and I think it has a lot of implications, spiritual implications, philosophical implications, all sorts of implications, but one of the, the, the aspects of this moment in Jewish history, part of the reason why I feel that as scary as it is to be here, it's a privilege at some level to be here at this moment in Jewish history is because it is this moment of unity. You know, it was a, a moment where Israeli society was quite fragmented by, you know, this this fight over the Supreme Court. And suddenly, like in seconds, um, all of a sudden, everyone was family. And all of a sudden, no one was refusing to serve. And all of a sudden, there was this palpable sense of unity. And it just feels like what a privilege to be able to be here for that, to be able to participate in that, to have kids yeah who can volunteer and connect to that. And like everybody, I'm sitting in a cab on my way somewhere, and I remarked on this to the cab driver. I said, you know, the unity out here is really amazing. And he points to his phone. I said, what's on your phone? He said, look at these WhatsApps. Turns out that the cab driver, just regular guy, he points to his phone, and it turns out that there's a base of Duvdevan, which is the special operations soldiers in Israel near him, and he and his friends went out and um, he's showing me pictures of this barbecue that they cooked up for all 150 soldiers at this Duvdevan base. It was, you know, it says it was 8,000 shekel. And he's looking to, and he's going to do this every week, him and his friends, uh, as long as these guys are there. He was so excited to be able to participate. Anyway, I was chatting with him about that. And, uh, you know, he also felt what a privilege to be able to, 
to do that. And this is a cab driver. He doesn't have 8,000 shekels. He even to spend. Like, that's a lot of money to, to spend on this stuff, to spend on it weekly. So I gave him a 250 shekel tip and then use it for the, uh, use it to help buy the grill. Yeah. Um, and uh, took a selfie with him and, um, you know, wished him, wished him the best. Unity is, is a big deal. I think it's it's obviously a big deal in Israel. You know, my, my parents are Israeli and my mom would give me calls throughout the year and being like, you know, like, I'm really scared of the civil war. Society was pretty fractured. You have a, a Chima Neshek, right? The Brotherhood in Arms who was threatening not to show up uh, for service. Mm-hmm. And they've all showed up for service. And not only did they show up for service, but you have like 2,000 Haredim who are volunteering to be drafted, which is sort of also wild because they had right a lot of this is around that uh part of society not wanting to participate in in the army so just like things that we never would have uh seen before which are are, are heartening and and the other side of me is also just like is this the price we need to pay for for unity i'll grant you that it shouldn't have to take this for us to to sense that kind of unity but uh, to me the the opportunity to bring your individuality into um, the unity of the people is a very special thing. You know, one of the first courses I produced in Aleph Beta was the, this Ten Commandments course. If you haven't seen it, it's called The Hidden Structure of the Ten Commandments. You can find it in our Shavuot section. And one of the sort of takeaways at the end of that is that if you look at the structure of the Ten Commandments, one of the ideas that it points to is respect this sort of idea that the individual sacrosanct, that you just can't violate him. But then there's this countervailing force to respect, and it's love. And love and respect are sort of in tension with one another, because love is about unity. Love is where the walls of two people sort of can come down between them, and they can connect with one another. But the scary thing about love is that when you come together to form a we, whether it's a man and a woman in love, or whether it's a community coming together to form a we, the danger is always the possibility of the loss of an I. The, the, the I in the sense of, you know, a capital I, the letter I. Um, the loss of a sense of self. And that's why respect is important. Respect allows you to preserve the sense of self even as you merge together with somebody else to really form a we. It's that that I see being the spirit of the country here, which is that everyone is trying to do what they can. I mean, one of our guys, one of our our patron circle members, I got an email from me as a clothing store in Jerusalem, and he's you know his ad is it's it's buy one give one, right when you. By whatever you buy, th- that exact same thing gets donated to the people from the South, you know? And that's what he can give. And then there's um, my social worker relative that can do art therapy. And so that's what she's giving. And it's a chance for just everybody to come together in this uh, in, in remarkable kind of way. Um, and it's pretty mind-blowing. One of the great sort of myths of American culture or the American ethos is the belief in the rugged individual. To be an American is to believe in the rugged individual, is to believe in the Marlboro man at some level. And, you know, to some extent, always, 
We are two beings at once, to get back to that Ten Commandments idea. We are individuals at one level, and we are members of community. To say anything other is to deny the truth of who he is. It's like it's like a cell in the human body declaring itself, I am a cell, I'm perfectly independent, I've got my nucleus, I've got my, uh, my messenger RNA, I've got everything I need. I'm a cell. Well, is that really all who you are? Without recognizing that you're part of an organ, that you're part of a human body, you haven't really told the truth about who you are, but you have to balance community, the way in which I am part of a community to the way in which I'm part of an individual. I think this is where we get tripped up a lot. I think somehow in Western culture, we have skewed towards the idea of individualism a great deal. We tend to really, really emphasize it. And part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that generally life has been pretty good in America. And I sort of suspect that when things are pretty good, that it's almost like the community serves the individual. Why do I, why am I happy to live in the United States of America? Well, the United States of America makes it easy for individuals to flourish and to be their best selves. And America is there to support life, liberty, and the pursuit of the happiness, all of these individual values. That's what it's about. But that's when things are good. And somehow when things are bad, when the community finds itself threatened, when America finds itself threatened, when Israel finds itself threatened, suddenly everyone sort of instinctively, in a minute, in a second, intuits themselves as much more part of a community, and that communal identity is very strong. That's why the soldiers will come back, and there was a draft for 200,000 soldiers, and 250,000 soldiers showed up because people wanted to volunteer. You interview one of these soldiers, say, are you going to risk your life? Yes, I risk my individual life. Why are you doing that? Because I have the sense that I'm part of a community, and the community really, really matters to me. It's part of the beauty of people coming together, that sense of family that we have as a nation. It's that cab driver who's making the barbecue. It's the, it's the philanthropist who takes all of these rooms. It's my daughter who's knitting these little loveys and security blankets for the kids in the South. It's, the, it's, it's yeah, I'm a little individual, but I'm really, really part of this community. And by the way, interestingly, that in Sheva Brachas, isn't it, that is a moment of great, greatest individual happiness to wedding. Isn't it interesting that the Sheva Brachas proclaim that you're still part of a community? Od Yishamabari Yehuda, the, the feelings of rejuvenation of a community and breaking the glass for a communal mourning. We do that stuff to remind ourselves you're never just an individual. You're always part of, of something larger. And that is something which I think we lose sight of now and then. It makes for a good slogan, we are one, I'm Yisrael Chai, but it's something which I can delude myself into thinking is just a fiction, is just this sort of fable, is this song that I sing, but it's nothing nothing more than that. But it's real, right? Like, uh, you know, I think the illusion is that a community is nothing more than the sum total of all the individuals within mm. it that all we are is a whole bunch of different people. We're more than that. We are that, but we're more than that. We are also a community, which is a single unitary being. Mm -hmm. Sure, there might be a little cell over here that is often a periphery that can, that can muse in its spare time. But fundamentally, all the cells are called upon for what the community needs to do. It defends itself, bind its wounds, take care of the wounded, and take care of those that are hurt and to figure out how the community can move forward in the face of that.
I think you're right that there is this sliding scale of individual to collective. And one thing I've noticed in this war over and over again is how things change depending on how you shift perspectives. Like almost like you're at the uh, optometrist office and they like put the lens in front of you and they're like, oh, is this clear now? And is this not clear? Like you can shift the lens so many different times. And, and what you're doing is one of those lenses. Like as an individual, if we see things purely on the scale of individuals, like the only just thing is to punish just the bad guys and spare all the people who were innocent and to punish the people who were sort of collaborative in sort of punishment ways, right? Like everybody should get their just measure. And, and if I were God, that's how I would meet it out. Um, it actually doesn't work that way and it can't work that way. I wish it could. It can't work that way. So like we need to also recognize there is this thing called individual versus collective. And right now, you know, it's not like, Beiri and a couple of these towns in the south, they had an issue. And so let, let the people down south figure it out. Let them go and, you know, go into Gaza. That's not what's happening, right? The army is doing that. The army is getting up on their behalf. The people of Israel, are the Jews are getting up on behalf of those people and saying, no, 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 you didn't attack those guys. You attacked all of us. We are all part of this. And so then you go to war with, you know, not the 2,000 terrorists, not the, the 20 guys at the top, right? You're going to war with another nation, and that's extremely uncomfortable when you sit as an individual and, and makes a lot more sense when you sit from the perspective of the collective. So that that's helpful. One thing that's also been helpful to me is just like, I don't know, um, at my shul, there's a, um, a meditation group that meets weekly. And it's a beautiful group, and I'm so happy that I have it. But we were, you know, uh, two weeks after the horrible uh, events of Shmiat Seret, and we were just processing. And, and, and someone was very sensitively saying how difficult this has been for, for them, how uh, they've been struggling, both feeling very alone in the world and also struggling with the, the high human cost on the other side. I'm talking about confusion and, and a bunch of us were saying how we were confused. And then there was a voice that none of us had ever seen before at the meditation group that sort of like pe penetrated it all. And this person began by saying that she's not confused at all. She's very clear. And she explained that she was, she's from Israel. She's, uh, she's visiting the community. She's from Efrat and she's here because there was a Simcha, um, a happy occasion that she she flew into the U.S. for. She wasn't even she was considering not even coming, but her her kids really insisted that it was important for her to go. And so we were. It was just this very weird shift in the room because this is an intimate communal space, and somebody not from our community, somebody who was far more connected to uh, to the tragic events than we were, was there. And she was saying how she is extremely clear in this moment. Uh, she has tremendous moral clarity. She's not doing any hand-wringing. And she said, she's like, look, my heart is barely even mourning our own tragedy, let alone the tragic loss on the other side. My heart can't go there right now because right now we need to be cleared. We need to do what we need to do to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves, to get the resources to the people who don't have the resources. And afterwards, there'll be time to mourn, to grieve. And it was interesting because I didn't experience her comments at all as having to do with me. What I mean is, she needs to be clear. She is an Israeli citizen. She's there. She needs to make sure the resources go to the right people. Like, I'm not there. 
the body of Israel is large. The Jewish people is large. There are many different people in many different circumstances who are called upon each for their mission in their time. And and that's that's what I keep coming to is like, you know what? I have the capacity to do some hand-wringing. Let me do some hand-wringing. I have the capacity to have compassion for uh, Gazans. So great. So th- let that be my job. And I have nothing to say to the people who need to be abundantly clear in this moment to do what they need to do. And maybe that's also part of what you're saying is I have the luxury of being a little bit more of an individual in this moment. But I just keep noticing how there's so many different lenses to wear. And to some extent, there's achdut in that as well, right? There's a unity in a a federation of many different kinds of individuals who each have their particular um, job and their different feelings in this moment. When she was talking about what we need to do in moral clarity, I think she was talking about the we, the body of Israel, right, right now Mm -hmm. needs to defend itself. Mm -hmm. That's what the body of Israel needs to do. You know, before we talked about how things get muddled, even in moments of moral clarity, it's trying to make sense of the craziest thing in human life, the craziest phenomena there is, which is war. The first tablet of the Ten Commandments is Anochi Hashem Alakach, I'm the Lord your God. And the second the tablet, the first part is Lo Tirzach, right? Do not murder. And taking a human life is the number one no-no there in, in Ben Adam Lechavero and, and how I relate to people. And yet war comes along yeah. and seems to make a mockery yeah. of that. And how do we even make sense of it? Is there a way to make sense of it? Like, am I supposed to completely harden myself to the plight of, you know, the Gazan mother and say to myself, well, she's for sure a supporter, uh, you know, would be dancing in the streets and, you know, rejoicing at the death of, you know, one of my hostages. So I don't have to feel I, bad. I've seen many, many justifications of trying to tie every individual in Gaza to the terrorists and to basically show how there are no innocents, right? Like I've seen that, right. that philosophical bent. And it just seems to me like that's a fraught path, right? Like to, if that's what I need to do to make peace with what's going on. And I just think like sometimes a little humility says that you can hold contradictory feelings at the same time. And that's part of what it is to be a human being sometimes in your life is to be able to embrace contradictory feelings. You know, it was Emerson who said, you know, do I contradict myself very well? Then I contradict myself. And, you know, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. There are two ideas here and somehow both are true. One idea is, yeah, there's somebody who got hurt. There was somebody who was killed in Gaza. It's terrible. They've got a wife, they've got kids. It's it's awful, and I can find compassion in my heart for that, and that is one feeling. And the other feeling is I was attacked. My nation was attacked in a barbaric way and is fighting an existential fight for its ability to live in this neighborhood and continue to exist. And the only way it can prosecute a war is not trying to hurt civilians, but the only way it can prosecute a war is that there will be civilians who die, and it has to defend itself. It has to defend itself is one feeling. I feel terrible for those truly innocent on the other side who suffer is another feeling. At some level, those feelings, but up against each other, and I can embrace both. And I can embrace both. 
And there may be a time in the future that is maybe not now that I could even explain to you exactly how I can embrace both, that I could argue to you in a cognitive way, in a philosophical way, in a way that can make sense. But maybe now isn't the time. Maybe now is the time to say, I can embrace both. I hold multitudes, as Walt Whitman said, even contradictory parts, and it doesn't take away from the justice of the war, the compassion for those who die on the other side, who are innocent, who have lives, who have children, and I can feel for that too. I I appreciate that tremendously, because to me, you know, I'm always looking for clarity, I'm always looking for for all contradictions to be resolved so I can know the one right way to think, behave, feel. And, you know, I can pour over these editorials and these papers and those editorials and those papers and weigh all the, the different opinions and come to some, you know, grand conclusion. But I don't know about you, but nothing has ever felt right. Nothing, no one thing has felt completely right. And so it's almost like in my desire to have clarity, it feels like the best thing I can do is relinquish that desire. Relinquish that role. The relinquish that role. Right now, you are part of a community that was attacked. And you're a compassionate human being, but the one thing you aren't is the judge and the jury of this community right yep. now. There's still God in heaven, and part of the humility is that God will judge. God will judge the enemy that attacked God will judge me. And even prosecuting that that we even prosecute this war against Hamas is not so much because we are the judge of them and we are there to dispense justice. It's not that we were elected judge of the universe. It's that we were attacked for heaven's sake. And we have a right and a duty to protect our own. And therefore we're responding. That's different than the judge of the universe. God is the judge of the universe. There, there's two things that you bring to mind that I, that, I don't know, just make me think of. But one is um, no matter where you go, it, it, it seems like too much of one thing is not good, right? If you're too much about peace and love, then then when people come and, and rape and attack and, and, and kill innocents, then what role does peace and love have in that moment? And when you're too much about, well, we'll punish the oppressor and we will not have compassion, then you become your oppressor, right? You become the enemy. That So, so you have to be able to, to somehow hold on to multiple perspectives at the same time. So that's one thing that feels really resonant. And the lack of clarity feels like a part of it. Like you can't have unambiguous clarity when you're holding multiple perspectives and, and somehow that just feels better. The second thing that you're bringing to mind is just, and again, sitting here safe in Teaneck, like the invitation to think that doing something by judging, I've been having a hard time with that. Like, should my role be to go onto social media and defend the actions of Israel? Like, I don't know. Like, we're all doing a lot of talking, but one thing that never feels bad is helping. It's that woman, that kid, look, if the kidnapped mother can do it then by God, we can do it, right? And if there's a little part of you that feels guilty because you're not standing up and 
judging the other guy and defending defending and marching and all you're doing is helping and packing the duffel bags and putting and buying the headlamps and giving them to the soldiers and taking care of those that they left behind at the home front and baking a meal and showing up in Israel and showing that I'm standing with you. All you're doing is those things. My daughter knitting the blanket for the little kid with the teddy bear uh, whose daddy's off to war. All you're doing is those things. Nobody can argue with you. You can have... uh, You can have... All the tortured feelings that you want, but you can't argue with being a part of a community in pain and doing what you can to alleviate it and to bring a smile and to connect. That's a theme we've been saying podcast after podcast, uh, episode after episode here, is when violence abounds and when people are engaged in uh, just the worst of humanity, then be the best of humanity instead of right? Can we uh, can we fill the world with, with life and kindness? And like that mother in the supermarket, to take refuge in the nourishing aspects of community to lift you out of the whirlpool of self-involvement. And I think part of the whirlpool of self-involvement, honestly, is, you know, use the word judging. I don't think that it's any of our individual jobs to sit in judgment. Yeah, no matter how many editorials we read. <laughs> no matter how many editorials you read, there is something like, I have a part of a community that was attacked, and I will humbly stand by this community as this community tries to defend itself honorably, prosecuting a war against an entity that is hateful while not targeting individuals that have nothing to do with it, but accepting some of those losses, just as I accept some of my own losses in war. Um, It's a terrible, mind-bending, uncomfortable time. Boy, I'd rather live in a more comfortable time and not having to be weighing this stuff. But my job is to be part of a community and to understand with integrity, emotional integrity and spiritual integrity and physical integrity and ask yourself, what can I do to respond in a way that is right and good and and noble? And that's what I think we're all trying our hardest to do. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rabbi Foreman, for uh, engaging in this conversation. And uh, and this was a particularly difficult topic. Going into this podcast, I was thinking, like, I knew we were going to have this conversation. And I was thinking, okay, what could we say? We're not journalists. And we're not, we're not ethicists. Uh, I, I don't know that the value we contribute here is by telling other people what to think or feel. Because I really, I was thinking, like, what am I going to even say that's going to resolve anything? Uh, and I think that there is good value in at least being vulnerable enough to expose how we are thinking um, and what we're struggling with. And if it's resonant, great. And if it's not, feel free to discard. Um, but that, that's kind of the, the way in which I would, I would characterize this conversation for anybody. No one should take anything I think we're saying as as if it's like, you know, the prescription. But as always, you manage to find uh, words that, uh, I guess, arranged in the right order, uh, <laughs> bring some comfort and some, some sense of, uh, of wisdom. Betoch ami ani Yoshavez. That's a, a keep, keep thinking about that. I dwell in my people. Yeah, I'll say amen to that. Imu, thank you for hanging out yep. with me. Until next time, I'll see you. Bye. 
This episode was recorded by Imu Shalev and Rabbi David Foreman and was edited by Tikva Hecht, Hilary Gutman, and me, Adina Blaustein. We would also like to thank Batya Hefter. Though not named in this episode, she is the Israeli woman who shared her insights at Imu's meditation group.